Hello everyone, this is Alex Trumbull from The Alex Trumbull Show, and today, today is a little more of a difficult day. See, today I'm here again with a really good friend of mine, a good friend of the show, Mick Mulroy. Mick is the co-founder of Lobo Institute, a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, the national security analyst for ABC News, and the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East at the U.S. Department of Defense. Mick is someone who has great in-depth knowledge of what's going on on a global level, and he is being so kind to come and share his perspective. So the, the question arises, why are we having these conversations? Why have conversations about what's happening in Myanmar? Why have conversations about what's happening in Afghanistan? And today, today our conversations about what's happening in Ukraine and Russia. Why have these conversations when this, this podcast is focused on leadership development? Well, because these topics are focused on leadership development. The reality is that we live in a global world where you may have employees and partners and customers and supervisors from all across the world who may be being impacted by events such as these. And so in order to truly understand what's going on and be empathetic, you have to have an understanding of what is going on across the world. And so today, as I said before, today, we're gonna to be talking about what's happening in Ukraine What's Russia's role? What's America's role? And why this is important for us to know about it. Without any further ado, my good friend and a friend of the show, Mick Mulroy. Hello, everyone. This is Alex Trumbull from The Alex Trumbull Show. And again, again, we're here having a very uh, difficult conversation, but I, I want to make sure that, as always, that we have a perspective, a perspective that's more, more nuanced than what you'll see on a three-minute, four-minute segment on a news clip or uh, a two-minute read in an article. And this is why I have my friend here again to talk about this. And so, um, first, as always, how are you doing, kind sir? I'm doing good, Alex. It's, uh, it's obviously been all-consuming with the current situation with the Ukraine, um, but I'm trying to do my best to help people understand what's going on and the consequences that not only the, the people of Ukraine might face, but also the international community, because this this is, has the potential for being a widespread, impactful event. Yeah. So, you know, to, to jump right in, you know, Russia has sent over 150,000 thousand troops to the area um just last night today is you know february 22nd but just yesterday um putin basically said two regions within ukraine are independent so they he he's moved troops into those areas on a peacekeeping mission i'm doing air quotes for those who are, who are listening right now um and it it really seems like things are, are not going in a in a positive direction as of right now. And so for, for those individuals who maybe have no context as what's going on, can you can we just start off with why is Russia so interested in Ukraine? 
And on the other side, then why is the United States so interested in Ukraine? Both good questions. So when the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, a lot of the former Soviet states, Ukraine being one of them, uh, became independent. And Russia agreed to that as, as the actual accord to dissolve the union um, allowed for all these states to become independent. Some of them actually joined NATO. Some of them did not. And the ones that did not are at, are the, at question here. So Russia, uh, now run by uh, President Putin, who, for those who don't know, was a KGB officer, so their CIA, uh, and then a politician for decades and decades. Uh, president of Russia had to step down based on the Constitution, changed the Constitution, now back as the president. And he has said many times that the biggest geo, uh, geopolitical crisis ever was the, the, the fall of the Soviet Union. So he has had this kind of psychological uh desire to try to regain at least part of it. He'll never regain the Soviet Union. That's impossible. Yeah. Uh, partially because the, some of the satellite countries are in NATO, which means they'd have to fight the US. But the Ukraine is not. And so that has become a sole point with him for years. In 2014, he invaded using covert operatives and annexed a place, uh, a region called Crimea, mm-hmm. still part of Ukraine but he essentially owned it. That wasn't enough for him. So after that, he started to foment a insurrection in an area called Donbass with Russian speaking Ukrainians, right? So they had, the, the cultures have a lot in common, but even then there's some ethnic Russians that live in Ukraine and there's some ethnic Ukrainians that live in Russia and yeah. Poland and a lot of, right? It's, it's, it's a region, right? And they've been, there for thousands of years, obviously. So um, that didn't work for him. So then he sent in some of his special operations forces dressed, uh, what we call little green men. So you see people refer to it in the media. That means basically a Russian special operations soldier who's dressed as civilian clothes and got sent into Ukraine to act like he was an Ukrainian. Yeah. Right. So all of a sudden he's like, I hate it here. I want to join Russia. Well, he's a Russian soldier who's on there under a war. That didn't work, right? So he's failed twice. So now he has built up a sizable, it's, I think it's closer right now, if you look at all the areas where troops have moved to, about 190,000 troops. Wow. Uh, surrounding, and we can get into, if you're interested, how I think this might play out, but from the north in Belarus, a former Soviet uh, satellite, uh, from the east in Russia, and now an amphibious assault force in a naval armada in the Black Sea and the Sea of uh, Azov. So he is looking at, to your to point of your question, of sending people into the Donbass, like official Russian army uh, soldiers and sizable amount. The concern, it's already a complete violation of international law. It's completely unjustified. And the uh, entire world should condemn already what they did in Crimea and now this. But the concern is he will get there he will either instigate or fabricate a conflict with Ukrainians near this region, and then he'll use that for a full invasion uh, of the Ukraine, which could have catastrophic consequences. And and on the other side, is is the U.S. beholden to protect 
Ukraine? Is, is there anything historically that makes us have to step in if something happens? So there's nothing historical, Alex, that makes us have to. But I, I qualify the word have to. They're not in NATO. So under NATO, there's Article 5 of the treaty itself requires every member to come to the collective defense of every other member. So if, if Russia were to be doing this with Poland, for example, uh, they would be fighting the US, the UK, France, Germany, everybody else in, in NATO. Um, Ukraine asked to join NATO for obvious reasons, I think like 14 years ago. But because of the tension between Russia, we haven't accepted that. So we don't have to uh, come to Ukraine's defense. However, the US is what I would say, the leader, if not a leader of free democratic nations around the world. And Ukraine is a democratic nation. One of the reasons why Russia really doesn't like them on their border, because they can't control them. Yeah. Like they control yeah. Belarus, which is just another uh, autocracy that answers to Moscow. Ukraine is not. They have a democratically elected president, and they are they are becoming more and more Western. So out of the severe sphere of Russia, and more in line with Europe. So that's one of the reasons why he's so concerned about it. And he doesn't like that. So we don't have a contract, or not a contractual, but a treaty obligation to defend them, but we might have a moral obligation. And certainly, we don't want a, another country dominated by Putin on the doorstep of NATO. So I would say we have somewhat of a moral obligation to help them. That doesn't necessarily mean commit military forces directly in the fight. But we're doing many things to help them right now. And the president today announced some sanctions as a way to try to push back on any uh, further invasion of Russia into Ukraine. And we'll just have to see if that works. Well, if if Russia is concerned with um, the UN's, I believe it's called the open door policy, if, if, they, if they're concerned with um, Ukraine moving into that space and then having NATO on their borders, which is that's what it sounds like they are. I mean, why don't why don't we in America just say, okay, well then we just won't accept Ukraine and it be a done deal. So that is that is an excellent point that Putin has made. So I would, like I pointed out, they asked for admittance into NATO uh, 14 years ago. And to your point, there's an open door policy. Uh, that's, that's like one of the pinnacles of NATO is that democratic free countries should have the option to ask to join NATO. We don't want to like, you know, I mean, think about it. So we have some of the oldest democracies, the most well-established, quite frankly, wealthy democracies on earth. And we have this young upstart that wants to be a democracy who is still, I mean, it's in Europe, but it's also one of the poorest countries in Europe. And we're going to tell them they can't join. I mean, so what are we going to yeah. be as leaders around the world if, if we're just going to blanket say you can't even ask to join our club? So that's, that is something that the U.S. will not do. And I agree with them. They will, not, they will not say they can never join NATO because that's essentially throwing them to the wolves. I mean, literally, it's, it's, it's saying it's a free radical good luck. Do whatever you want to this country. So I think we've balanced that by not accepting him into NATO. I mean, you know, Putin had an hour or something speech yesterday about why he was going to invade. Mm -hmm. He didn't even mention NATO for 30 minutes of it. So 
So part of it's just BS. He just doesn't, he knows that like NATO is not going to attack Russia. Why? What, what will we get out of that? Part of it is, is he uses that as, you know, his justification on the international stage. But ultimately, he wants to regain some kind of, yeah, I, yeah. you know, grandeur of the Soviet Union. And, and Ukraine is like uh, one of the things that has just been stuck with him forever. That's, that's, that's a great point. Um, yeah, I, I recently finished reading uh, Condoleezza, Condoleezza Rice's book, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice's book. And you, you hear of all the stuff that we're watching in the news and the media and the speeches, for the most part, it's theater. Um, there are so many deals happening and people are saying one thing, but they really mean another thing. Um, and so you're right. He said, I watched that speech by, by, by Putin in preparation for this conversation here. And you're absolutely right. Um, wow. So then you, you mentioned the sanctions, right? Uh, the Biden administration mm-hmm. has, has moved forward with levying sanctions um, and the broader international community has agreed to, to move forward. NATO, at least NATO has approved to move forward with sanctions as well. Um, one, what is to stop I mean, the reality is a- after Crimea, uh, my understanding is that Russia tried to become very intentional with making their, their country more sanction resistant. Um, mm-hmm. uh, they had uh, new trading partners, a smaller national budget, um, fewer tra- loans to international organizations. And I think they, like, they operate, the, the number I have is they reduced working with the US dollar from like 40% all the way to 16%. So the, the question then becomes, Will anything come from sanctions? And we sanctioned after Crimea, so, and that didn't really change too much, did it? I mean, can s- sanctions do anything? So, super good question. Before I ask, answer that, to go back to Dr. Rice, because not only was she Secretary of State, she was National Security Advisor, and she's an expert mm-hmm. on Russia. She actually went to school for that. And there's a, I don't want to get a sidetrack, but there's an interesting story that she tells on September 11, 2001, yeah. when obviously we were attacked. They assigned her to have to talk to Putin because there was all sorts of, you know, we're going to DEFCON this, you got to go to that. Uh, and she didn't want to, right? I mean, she was like, you're the vice president, I don't want you to talk to him. And she was, and, and uh, Vice President Cheney was like, you're the Russian expert, you speak Russian. So she had to do it. It's, it's, it's a very serious and kind of funny thing where she describes like not wanting to talk to Vladimir in the middle of, you know, 9 11. So I would definitely listen to her commentary on anything, but certainly when it comes to this, because She's an old school Russian expert. There's not a lot of those left. So on the the sanctions, you are correct. Um, And a lot of people would make that argument, the premise of your question being, it's not really having an effect. And the problem is, it would work if, if it could work against the democratic country because they have to answer to the people. So sanctions can really hurt individual mm. citizens yeah and if you're in a democratically elected leader you're you could be gone it's very hard to make them work against uh autocracies dictators right so we've had sanctions in place on iran for i don't know how long it's really hurt their economy really hurt the people over on somehow no matter what the people who still run places like that don't get affected because you know they have all they have ways to you yeah. know, keep themselves uh, wealthy so Putin, uh, President Putin and his, you know, his very rich billionaire friends, 
um, they don't get that affected. But we're trying to now. So they, you have to give the U.S. and the international community, because this is just us, they're going after individuals that surround Putin that, that give him the power base. So they're trying to make it hurt. Um, will it, whether it will work, I don't know. I still think we should do it because we have to show them consequences. And these are more significant than we did in, uh, in 2014 when they uh, annexed Crimea. These are going to remove them from the banking system, the SWIFT, uh, it's an acronym for something, but the SWIFT system that allows them to, to, do, you know, to, to do all the international banking that's required in the global economy, they won't be in it. To your point, they've tried to come up with alternatives. I was on with another, with a Russian, uh, and he acknowledged that it won't be near sufficient enough to be at the level that the, the normal international banking. So that's a negative. Uh, we saw Germany come out today, uh, the Chancellor Schultz, and cancel the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And that's a huge, mm-hmm. uh, that would have been a huge moneymaker for Russia selling uh, Europe uh, energy, essentially. Uh, 40% of their energy comes from Russia. That's not gonna happen now. So there's gonna be consequences to our sanctions on us, right? So there'll be sanctions, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there'll be consequences to Russia. It probably will not, unfortunately, dissuade President Putin. He's a dictator, so he doesn't need to answer to anybody. But gas prices, as we already saw, are gonna go up. They're gonna go apparently significantly up. I'm not an economist, but, uh, and there's other consequences to the world economy that we haven't seen yet because Russia, of course, can then start responding to these severe sanctions, doing things like cyber attacks on our financial institutions. It could be, it could be pretty significant. So this is, this is just at the beginning. I mean, they haven't even launched the full-scale base where you start seeing the most severe sanctions and then it'll give them the incentive to try to do something back to release the pressure. I, I, I love to hear, um, I'm going to ask you this question. I'm going to put it out there, you know, how you think this is actually going to play out. But before you get to that one, you know, we, 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 we're talking right now about how, about the negative impact that it could have on, <clears throat> on us as Americans. Um, but again, this is, I got to ask the question, is this, is this different than Afghanistan? And we were just talking about how bad of a situation that was. Um, is, is this comparable? So in some elements, it is uh, comparable in the sense that, you know, we obviously had a invasion of a country um, after we toppled the government, which is what Russia intends to do. Specifically, they have a literally a hit list for everybody they want to uh, kill with their special operations, which is called Spetsnaz. And then they, you know, they want to take over the country. They want to, uh, they want to have another government, and then they're going to have to be there for some time to support that government. So, in a, in a sense, I mean, there was a whole different. There's a lot of reasons why it's different, right? We were attacked on 11 We had Afghanistan. We installed a democratically chosen government. We spent billions of dollars trying to build that country up. Russia's not going to do anything like that. They're going to go in there, annihilate anybody they consider an adversary. They're going to install a puppet government. And then they're going to probably be a brutal, brutal um, counterinsurgent force to keep the what I think is going to be one of the most significant resistant forces we've seen uh, in my lifetime from, from deposing their puppet government. So there's similarities and there's differences. Uh, why this is another difference is 
this country is right up against a NATO country. Poland, for example. Mm-hmm. There is likely to be, and I saw the estimates of up to 5 million refugees coming out of Ukraine to try to, to move out of the way of this massive assault force, which quite frankly isn't going to be near as discriminatory as the U.S. military, which yeah. tries to avoid civilians. I hope they do, but I don't think they will. So there's going to be a lot, 5 million is the estimate. They're going to go to places like Poland, where there is Ukrainian ethnic groups. Once they go there, the insurgency from the Ukrainians is likely to hub as a safe haven out of Poland. So this then puts Russia in a position, that's our enemy now in Poland. How do we get to them? If they do try that, they're now attacking potentially a NATO country, which as we already talked about, triggers Article 5. So this has a this could be as brutal and horrific uh, as other conflicts in the world, but it also has the addition of putting two superpowers in such close proximity in direct uh, adversarial roles where it could it could escalate into a conflict that includes the United States and Russia, and that will not be good for anybody. You know, P- Putin, again, I don't, I do not know him personally, um, but I've never heard anyone say that Putin was, was not smart, um, that he, that he's, that he's, that he's calculated. Um, it would sound like in that situation, the only way for something like that to happen, it would be an accident, right? Someone doing mm-hmm. something, filing, firing artillery, artillery somewhere and hitting the wrong person, except attacking in Poland would automatically have article five, which would mean that everyone jumps in. They don't want that. So likely they would be, they would just not go over there and do anything. Right. Right. The rational actor theory is what we call it is that we're assuming that the leaders of uh, the superpowers are rational actors. Doesn't mean they're good. Doesn't mean they'll won't try to do things that are, you know, we wouldn't like, but they wouldn't want to cause something that would actually harm themselves or their country to a level that it harms. It's also like under the nuclear idea, the mutually assured destruction concept. Yeah. Like you can't win a nuclear war, right? So they're going to fire all theirs. If you fire yours, everybody's a loser. I mean, really a loser, right? So, and I think you're correct. I'm no, you know, Vladimir Putin expert, uh, but quite frankly, I've talked to quite a few recently to try to make myself as smart as possible on him. And what they have told me is that you're right. He is a very smart, in a conniving way, individual. He was, you know, a KGB colonel. I, he, I think he's a lawyer. He went to law school. I think he also got his PhD. Um, and obviously, he's a savvy enough politician to get where he's gotten. However, the one thing that I would bring up to this the people that I talked to actually called me today and they watched that uh, press conference, the meeting that he had yesterday with the National Security Council, and they were kind of surprised. It wasn't the Putin that they've seen uh, over the past few decades. Putin rarely gets emotional. He's usually very decisive. Yeah. And yes, he's, he's vicious, but he's rarely emotional. He's, he's, he's usually predictable in the sense that he's going to go what's in the best interest of Vladimir Putin. Um, and that's helpful when it comes to analysis and trying to predict for the intelligence services, talking to the president about what he may or may not do. But this, and this, admittedly, this is an expert, but just admittedly one of them said, 
that she saw this and she saw somebody who's highly emotional, who's making irrational arguments, counterfactual that he seemed to believe wasn't like he was making them, but he was, you know, um, and she was kind of surprised because it indicated to her that he wasn't the same person that they came to rely on as he'll do what's in his best interest, but he certainly won't go beyond that because it could mean that he gets, you know, booted out of power by the Russian people themselves, or he creates, to your point, the conflict that neither, well, he can't win. Um, I mean, even if he, the only option that they would have if they actually had a fight with the U.S. is nuclear, because we would beat them conventionally. I know we talk about how yeah. Russia is this, that, and the other. They're really not. Their economy is roughly the same size, maybe a little smaller than the state of New York, right? And the state of New York has a great economy, but it's only one of 50 states. So sometimes I think we overinflate, you know, how significant Russia is. Their economy is pretty small compared to the United States. You know, we have 50 states. You know, California is like an economy of itself. So th- we shouldn't overstate it. But the person I talked to, who I really do think is a, is a Putin expert, was a little surprised by what she saw yesterday during that uh, meeting that he televised. Yeah, you know, actually, that's a that's a really great point you bring up. I don't think many people realize and understand is just comparatively speaking, Russia's economy um, as it compares to, I mean, we we know them as a superpower primarily because nukes, right? Um, that right. That's what gives them their leverage, not because they have this massive army that could take us out. It's, it's nukes and I guess cyber, right? Yes. Yes. And they have no qualms to do things that we wouldn't do, right? So they have no qualms to chase a dissident around the world with radiative poison, um, which, mm-hmm. you know, to the... And, and, and as you know, I used to be in the CIA, not that we do these things, but the first thing we'd say is, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. They're going to know you did it. I mean, it's radioactive. And then they could trace the radioactive in the plane, on the bus, and, the thing. and you know, for, for, from the Western way of thinking, it's like, that's the worst covert operation in history. Mm-hmm. They, they think, no, it isn't. We want them to know. Wherever you go, it's like dropping a card, you know, like, a, you know, whatever. You're leaving your signature. They don't think the yeah. way we do. Uh, and they also don't have the qualms. I mean, they've supported uh, Assad in Syria for, they're, he, they're the only reason why he's still around. And that's going to be the worst human rights catastrophes and, and quite frankly, crimes committed in our lifetime. And it was supported by uh, Russia. So it is a different adversary to your point. They do not have the military power we do. They certainly don't have the economic power, but they're willing to do whatever it takes. And that sometimes makes an adversary very dangerous. So. Before we get into the again, this you know, how do you think it's going to play out? I, I'd love to throw by you. Didn't I'm asking the question because it was asked to me. Um, is this happening because of how we pulled out of Afghanistan? Um, does the world see us in a, or do you believe he sees us in a more vulnerable position and wanted to take a step given the situation? Well, that's a difficult question. I think that he would have done this even if we were still in Afghanistan. So I was a critic of the decision, as you know, we talked about it, to pull out, not leave a residual force, and certainly the way we pulled out. I don't think anybody was a fan of the way we pulled out, even if you were poorly. But 
I don't think that, I mean, that, that definitely gave Putin the idea that we didn't have the stomach for like international engagements and hostilities. So it could have been a factor. So I'll give, I will say that it could have been a factor, but I don't think that was like, okay, they pulled out of Afghanistan. So now I'm doing this. I don't think it was a clear cut. Uh, and, and to that point, and as you know, I'm nonpartisan, apolitical person. I was critical of the current administration for that. I think they're actually doing a good job right now. You know, it's not done, but they have managed to bring mm. our NATO allies and speak with one voice. They have, uh, through Secretary Austin, used the military, projected the force out to defend our NATO allies. Uh, and, and it's been extraordinarily effective. And the, the speed of which we did it, the coordination between allies, asking for our presence, has been excellent. And then the intelligence service, and I'm biased, you know, but the administration has really used effectively the disclosure on declassification of intelligence that's basically laid out for the world what Putin's going to do. And then he did it. Like he didn't even deviate from the plan, really. We said he's going to do this. He's going to create a false flag, which was embarrassing how um, amateur that was, quite frankly, uh, because it was it was easy to even amateurs to, to show the video was just totally fabricated. Uh, but the intelligence layout, I think, has also been effective. So I think they deserve credit for what they've done today. And let's just hope we keep up the good work. Uh, and we should think of this as Americans, not as any particular party. We're Americans. Uh, the U.S. is is a main pillar of NATO. We're with our NATO allies. We made a commitment to do so. And I think we're doing all right so far. Uh, but whether that'll be enough to prevent this catastrophe, uh, we'll see. So let, let, let's get into a scenario. So the Russian military is now starting to uncoil. Um, yeah. And they're positioning their uh, resources at the borders. I, they're being blood. They're, 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 they're preparing. Um, how, does this, how does this go down? So all those last points you made are really important. Uh, it's one thing to stick combat forces on the border. Remember, Russia's right next door, so they can easily put them back in garrison. And then they're when you start building field hospitals, when you start bringing blood, when you start doing these things that just indicate you don't do those things unless you're gonna you're gonna launch an invasion. And now they have, I think, around 190,000 uh, combat forces in what they call uh, battalion tactical groups. It's about 800 soldiers apiece, and then all their weapons, equipment, and support. Uh, a raid to create a serious dilemma for Ukraine. So Russia's forces are about six, seven times the size. So it's a David Goliath type scenario here. And the Ukrainians don't have a great air defense system. So the way this will likely go down, if it's a full invasion, is the main effort will come from the north, from Belarus. That's where they have most of their combat power oriented. Uh, but before that happens, you will see a continuation of cyber attacks. You will see electronic warfare um, tactics. So they'll try to take out the uh, cell system. They'll try to jam the radar system so they can't even see the planes coming. Uh, and then you'll start seeing, at the same time, airstrikes, massive airstrikes. So if you think about how we invaded Iraq in 2003, it's going to be similar. That are going to go after leadership targets. They're going to go after key uh, avenues that the, the ground force is going to take to try to loosen the, the resistance. And then you're going to see special operations come. And that's why you've seen a lot of talk about where President Zelensky is going to be. 
because they're probably going to try to take them out immediately because that's going to throw command and control into chaos, which makes it even more difficult for the Ukrainians. Then you'll see these main battle tanks, these uh, self-propelled artillery, they're just infantry forces coming down in uh, armored personnel carriers and assaulting, I think their first target will be Kiev, you know, the capital city. They'll likely just try to envelop it and then send special forces in there to try to take out key nodes. I don't know if they will go for a full-out assault on a city of almost 3 million people. Um, I think they'll probably try to strangle it, essentially, and get them to uh, essentially surrender. One, because it would cost them a lot of Russian casualties to take a city that size. And two, they're going to have to kill a lot of civilians if they assault the city. They're going to kill. So um, even they might not want to be responsible for that. So I think they'll try to get them to surrender. At the same time, they'll likely come in from the east, from Russia, uh, into that Russian-backed area, and then try to at least keep enough of the Ukrainian forces pinned down that they can't go defend Kiev. The third element, there's a 30-plus ship armada in the Black Sea and the Sea of uh, Azov, and they have about six ships that are for amphibious landing. So their version of the Marine Corps, which we call, what they call naval uh, infantry. They're gonna land and start moving up from the south and immediately connect Crimea to that Russian-backed area. So this is gonna cause the 5 million plus people to flee or probably be killed. And they're estimating in the initial push, like 50,000 casualties, um, both civilians, military. In Russia's, I mean, the, the expectation is about 10,000 10, in the initial push uh, killed Russian soldiers, about 25,000 uh, Ukrainian soldiers. So if you start thinking about those yeah. numbers, I mean, yeah. this is, this is, uh, that's why I say it's catastrophic by today's standards in, in warfare. Uh, and then it's just the beginning, you know, so that's just, and I've seen estimates, I don't know, but I've seen estimates that significant military resistance by the Ukrainian would last for about a month before Russia just overwhelmed them with, you know, troop size, airstrikes, and just, if they want to go this way, brutality. Uh, they have the means to end this really quick, depending on how much violence and what they're willing to do. God. Um, goodness gracious. It's pretty great. It really yeah. is. We start actually looking at that. Uh, people start paying attention because this is on the doorstep of Europe. Oh, goodness gracious. Um, uh, man, I, I lost my, my thought while you were describing the, the sure numbers of lives, right? Oh, um, yeah. And that's just the first phase because we haven't even started talking about the insurgency that's going to fall. That's just the invasion phase. So two, two, two questions. The first one is, I think I'm pretty sure I heard Biden say that we would support in defense um, some sort of defense. What what does that mean? Does that mean that we're we would be willing to send planes over to you know to to drop bombs or something? Or is that literally we're on one side? If they go into Poland, we'll we'll fight them there. Or is is, is it even that? So uh, if they go into Poland, we will fight them. So we start with that because that is a NATO country. We have an absolute treaty obligation. Uh, that's why NATO went to Afghanistan. We were attacked. That's the way it goes. 
Uh, so we will do that. Uh, I don't, and, and when it comes to NATO, we've sent troops over there as part of what we call the NATO uh, response force. So when NATO feels threatened, all NATO members react. So we have troops in Romania, we have troops in Poland, we have troops in other countries. And, you know, one thing to point out is everything that President Putin claimed to be concerned about, he's exaggerated by his actions. Like NATO was, a, I, I would definitely not say it was obsolete, but some would. It's not obsolete now. I mean, it's probably more relevant than it has been since the end of the Cold War. Yeah. Um, we have sent more troops to be in Eastern Europe on the border of Russia. And they're talking about never t- sending them back. So we might have permanently stationed more troops in Eastern Europe. Again, that's what Putin claimed to be against. We have Finland. You know, it's a country that hasn't been in NATO because it's wanted to be like, just leave us alone. The president of Finland came out a couple of days ago and said, Heck, we might want to rethink that. You might want to be part of NATO because this guy's crazy. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, all the things that he's doing is causing all the issues he claimed to be worried about, you know? So that's one part. The second part is we, with what President Biden was saying is we are going to support Ukraine even after the invasion. So we've delivered the U.S. military to deliver around 400 tons in just the last month of weapons and equipment, including anti-tank weapons, javelins, anti-aircraft uh, weapons, stingers. President Biden saying that's not going to stop. I mean, we're once once the invasion stops, there's going to be a massive insurgency because the Ukrainians are going to fight for their country. They might not be able to do it conventionally, yeah. but they're going to on the unconventional side. The special operations forces are going to continue to fight long after uh, Russia's invaded, and that's what I think President Biden's talking about. They're never going to run out of ammo if uh, the United States has anything to say about it. We're going to provide support, probably in Poland. I don't know where, and this is my speculation. Uh, intelligence, uh, operational planning, weapons and equipment, medical, financing, just to have money. And, and it's not just going to be the U.S. I think it's going to be all of NATO. So this is going to be one hell of a, an insurgency, uh, a resistance uh, in Ukraine after the invasion, if it happens. And I think we should all hope that somehow diplomacy wins out and this doesn't happen, but the indications are that it will. I want to get back to that 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 cost of this of these these actions moving forward. But um, refugees, refugees, um, people leaving in mass numbers. What is that going to mean for those bordering countries with all these people trying to get out of harm's way? So Poland's already building facilities on the border. Uh, this is expected. It's it would be almost impossible for them to try to stop them. So I don't think they, and then how could they morally try to stop them, right? So they, they're fleeing an invasion by Russia into their country. There's also a lot of, we already talked about it, but ethnically Ukrainian people in Poland. So they're going to be taking them in uh, almost immediately. So this could cause serious disruption in Europe, uh, obviously. They're going to have to, all these displaced people, just like all over the world, I mean, just, they're, no, they're no more important but it's still a crisis like it is in other parts of the world where we, we as collectively need to figure out how to take care of people who have been forced out of their homes and are need just a basic life support, food, you know, shelter, uh, those type of things based on another uh, violent actor, in this case, Russia. And they, they, they were at least part of what caused this in Syria, right? Massive refugee flow there because of the uh, horrible actions of the Assad regime backed by Russia. 
So again, to that cost, and I want to broaden the conversation, um, the cost, like the literal cost in dollars and cents, in, in addition to the lives, obviously, and blood loss, the, the investment of dollars and cents that the U.S. will be dedicating towards this, why is why should we be doing that? We have enough we have, a, people would say we have enough problems here, right? Um, like what could something like this do to the economy job? Like, is there an impact to it for Americans? So, yes, Alex, I think there will be an impact. And I think that's one of the things that President Biden brought up today is, you know, this isn't going to be um, without a cost, you know, and we are uh, the leader of the free world. We say that, you know, all the time. And sometimes you got to prove it, you know, and I don't, I mean, I'm not saying that we run around and I'm not an advocate for us being the police officers of the world, but we want to have an obligation to NATO. So unless, unless the argument is we should not keep up our agreed upon obligations, then we obviously have to do some of this, right? We have to, we have to send forces to defend NATO. It's, it's, you know, it's our obligation. And then the other part is, you know, here's a, here's a young, struggling democracy and it's going to look for assistance from the other democracies in the world because we're seeing a significant trend toward autocracy in the world right now. So yeah, either yeah. we're going to defend uh, our side of that equation or we're not. And if we're not, then, then, then it's going to be more difficult for the countries like France, Germany, UK, uh, all significant countries in their own right. But if the U.S. isn't there, it's going to make them it's very difficult for them to be the ones to do it. So I would argue, you know, we want to limit the impacts on Americans. I'm not uh, Pollyannish by this, but I think we do have an obligation to lead. And that means we're going to impose sanctions on people. That, and the other thing to look at is, you know, if we, if we let countries that, you know, get taken over unjustifiably and unlawfully, who's next? You know, who's next? You know, are we going to wait until yeah. it's us? I mean, it's obviously not going to be us, but you know, from European perspective is, well, I mean, what if this guy is, you know, he's, he's, he's trying, he's now thinks he's Putin, Putin the great instead of Peter the great. He wants to bring back, you yeah. know, God knows, God knows. So uh, we have to take a stand and we should take a stand before it's, you know, if it is Europe or if it is NATO, then it is us. So we should look at it that way too. So if he decides to say, Hey, you know what? That went pretty well. Nobody cared. Nobody did anything. Didn't take any, consequences, maybe I'll take on another country and maybe that country is something that we have to defend. So I would argue that you don't, you don't, you don't wait till that's your door to fight. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You, you, you fight for what's right, but you try to do it as far away from your front door as possible. Right. So that's what I think the U S is doing. I think we should look at it as a country, obviously not as a, you know, this party of that. And I think we're doing okay right now, but um, let's, let's make sure we keep doing the right thing as we go forward. And then again, to now broaden that conversation, you know, there, there is, there is, there's questions about, um, we saw, again, just going through some little recent history, the pullout from Afghanistan, then you have, you know, you have Russia, you know, with this aggression right here. Um, what is, what does that signal to other countries? Do, do you then think, do you think that, you know, depending on how we react to this Russian situation right now, that China may say, you know what, maybe the U.S. isn't that serious about Taiwan. So we're going to or or, or or the Chinese Sea and, and, and diving more into the, the, the waters. Could this 
have ripple effects across the, the, the world? Yes, I, I think so. So there's reverberations on all your actions, right? So I don't, I think Russia would still do this even if we would not have pulled out of Afghanistan. We talked about that, right? But it does send a signal if it looks like the, the U.S. is, you know, we just, we're done being so active in the world. We're just going to withdraw and go into isolation. There's, there's always been a element of American political system that is isolationist, but it's not how America became America. We gave America because we did things like beat Nazism in World War II and push back and defeat uh, Japanese imperialism, right? Two very negative forces in the world. And that is essentially why we have the modern version of the United States when it comes to the international stage. So uh, again, I'm not saying we need to be the police force of the world uh, and just go willy-nilly into conflicts, but we need to be engaged. We need to lead. And to a certain extent, we need to show our force when we have to. And I think we got the right balance. Now, we're not sending troops into Ukraine to fight Russia. Um, some would argue if we did, this thing would be over because they're not going to fight us. But I do understand and I would agree, and I would agree that we shouldn't be doing that uh, right now. But if it goes past Ukraine, then we're next. Because you can say, well, we're not Poland. Well, under our treaty, we are Poland. You see what I mean? Yeah. So um, I think the American, uh, we should be proud of the role we play in the world. Um, and we should continue it. We have to be balanced. We have to look out for our own interests. But it should, it should go forward. Uh, whether this will give China, I, you know, that's another podcast. We'll have another podcast, Alex, mm -hmm. on that. Yeah. Um, but that's not going to happen for a while. But if we showed zero spine when it came to this, it certainly would give the Chinese more of a belief that they could do what they want uh, to Taiwan or other places, uh, thinking that the U.S. will not come to their partners. Defense. So, look, thank you so much for your time today. I, I do want to leave us with one last question to you, and you can, it can be a very, fairly broad question. What message or what bit of information do you feel is just not being shared right now in regards to this conflict that you think people need to be under, people need to understand and hear? So I think it's the duration. So I understand, you know, I'm on ABC several times a day and those folks are reporting from Ukraine and they're doing a phenomenal job. But all the media, rightfully so, is focusing on the immediate invasion, right? Because that's the, you know, the closest alligator to mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. you want to. But this is going to go on for a long time. It could have a very disruptive effect on the global economy. And it has that potential. It's that other part where you're putting the world's superpowers right next to each other in a raging conflict where the escalation level is, it's, it's concerning. So I certainly would, if people are focusing on this, I understand why they're focusing on how terrible this would be in the invasion, but to, to the point of your question, I would also look at this for what it could do long-term and the need for us to be very uh, calculated in everything we do after the invasion, because this could escalate. Uh, we don't want it to, and neither does Russia. I mean, we need Russia to decide this is a bad idea and pull out, but we certainly don't want this to escalate to it's a conflict between NATO and uh, and Russia. I think for some reason the sound cut off. <laughs> oh, you're back. You're back. Okay. <laughs> I was like, so <laughs> I had a, everyone, I, I was, I, he's saying that because I, I was on mute for a second. 
And um, I can tell everyone, I said something very profound and everyone you okay. probably would have That's laughed and would have cried. <laughs> I, I knew you were saying something profound or at least I was about to pass out or something. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just wanted to get, I wanted to say, Mick, thank you so much for your time. Um, every time we speak, I, I learn so much, especially again about what is not, there's just not enough time in our in our normal um, broadcast to really truly understand the nuances of these situations. So I appreciate you always being willing to share these stories. Um, hey everyone, I encourage you. I encourage you. I encourage you to to reach out to you know your friends and family and, and, and encourage them to listen to this episode so they can understand what's happening around the world. Um, I'll tell you like the vast majority of my podcasts are on leadership. And so the question is, why am I doing these conversations? Well, because leadership is, is international. Leadership is worldwide. Leadership is understanding what's going on around the world. So if you have an employee, you have a partner who may be being impacted by this, you have an understanding of what they may be going through or what they may be um, feeling at that moment. So uh, yes, I, I, I do these conversations. I, I do these these episodes for educational purposes in regards to what's happening on a global level, but also because I want you to understand that we have to have empathy and we don't know exactly what people are going through. So just understand the world is bigger than your office or your division or your department or your state or your country. Um, as always, I encourage you stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving. See ya. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thealextrembleshow.com and be sure to share what you've learned with at least one other person today. Check back on the first and third Wednesday of each month for new episodes. Until next time, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving.